Two and a Half Admins, episode 120. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, you've got a plug, Alan, the role of operating systems in IoT. Yeah, uh, so we just talk about why operating systems are important in IoT and, and some of the selection criteria and what to consider if you're going to build an IoT device. Right, well, link in the show notes as usual. Let's do some news then. And it turns out that Anchor has probably been lying about their Eufy cameras and how secure they are. Yeah, they claim that the cameras only record locally and that stuff doesn't go to the cloud and that, you know, unlike some other doorbell cameras and similar devices, that you control all of your footage and it goes to your local storage. But turns out that maybe it goes to the cloud too. It's particularly frustrating because a lot of people have bought these things specifically for the local storage only option, not just because local storage is, you know, more convenient for them, but specifically for privacy concerns. And it feels like what we're really learning from this is if you want to feel certain that your camera isn't sending pictures of you off to the internet, you, you kind of have to monitor its bandwidth usage, I guess. A second problem I see with this, like, I connect to these my network and, you know, I pay for my data. Why is this thing using data? It shouldn't be. That really <laughs> seems to be a, a problem. But yeah, you can see, I guess, after the fact, or maybe clearly some red flags, they talk about end-to-end encryption, but then the fine print just says, all recorded footage is encrypted on device and sent straight to your phone. It's like, okay, but if there's ways around the encryption, that's not end-to-end encryption. And if it's only the recording that's encrypted, that's not the same thing. <laughs> And he says, only you have the key to decrypt and watch the footage. It's like, okay. But it turns out I can connect VLC to the camera and watch the stream without a decryption key. So something's not encrypted. Yeah, and that's not just on your local network either. That is over the internet. You can connect via VLC. Yep. Now, it's not as easy as just like, oh, I heard I can do this. And so now I fire up VLC and, you know, start watching people's cam streams. The folks who are reporting this are still playing it pretty close to the vest, there are some special IP addresses that you can hit. And then you can look for serial numbers of, of cameras and kind of go from there. Fortunately, uh, the, the camera serial numbers for these UFI cameras, they're not just sequential. So you can't just like start with ID 1000 and try 1001 and 1002. You have to hit a valid serial number and you have to know what IP address to go find. And apparently the folks at Anchor who own Eufy have have started closing some of this because the folks reporting this say that the method that they use to find IP addresses they could connect to no longer works, but some IP addresses they had already discovered are still working. So it's all kind of hinky, but again, it's really not good and really just comes back down to i think at this point, if you're buying consumer security hardware and it's really important to you that that hardware not be sending your data off to the internet, you probably need to be monitoring how it's using bandwidth and when. Maybe even if it's not supposed to be going to the internet, if it's supposed to be all local storage, maybe you tell your router, no, this thing isn't allowed to go to the internet. And you'd only enable that for just long enough to grab a firmware update when you want a firmware update, which is not ideal, but... It's somewhat expected for it to be able to connect to the internet because you're supposed to be able to connect from your phone through their mediation thing to the camera in order to watch your camera when you're not at home. But only you are supposed to be able to do that. And it's supposed to be encrypted and have a key. 
If you're supposed to be able to use consumer hardware to watch the camera in your house over the internet, you have already abandoned all thoughts of realistic security. I'm sorry. It's just, nope, that's that's not what security looks like. But digging into it a bit more, it looks like, you know how it said that all the videos stored on the, the local storage is encrypted? It is, except for it appears that all of it is encrypted with AES-128 using the key ZX Security 17 Cam App. Which key has been leaked on GitHub. Yes, since 2019. Yeah, yeah it was 2019. <laughs> and I, I, I got a little hazy on the details, but I believe that the key has been used for other things, not just for that. <laughs> but yeah, it appears that even most of the claims of what they did encrypt wasn't encrypted well. And then a lot of the stuff isn't actually encrypted or the encryption is optional, which kind of defeats the purpose of encryption. But yeah, in general, anything that claims to have encryption and only do local storage, like Jim was saying, maybe you want to keep an eye on what it's doing towards the internet. But in this case, it seems like unless you bother to do a port scan against the device itself and figure out that it has a port that will respond to VLC, it's not something you very easily would have found if you weren't looking for it. So I don't know how people are supposed to protect themselves from this kind of crappy marketing and badly built devices. It's particularly disappointing that it's Anchor because Anchor for me is kind of the name you know in charging and, you know, portable batteries, small chargers that are really efficient and and good quality. Yeah. But, you know, somebody that's good at making good quality hardware doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be able to make good quality software and firmware and keep it up to date. In this case, it looks like... (laughs) They got some people to string some Python together and like, well, we'll just encrypt everything with this key and we'll we'll figure out key management later and then never did. And, you know, we'll make this cloud gateway thing that will let people connect from their phone to it and we'll be able to expose their thing without having to teach people how to do port forwarding and so on. It's like, that's great, except for it doesn't actually work that way. You know, it reminds me of similar IoT devices we've talked about before, like the uh, the light switch controller. Uh, So you basically plug this into the wall and then plug a lamp into it. And then from a phone app, you can turn the lamp on and off. Sounds great. Turns out the way it works is when you open the app and you pair it and you toggle the switch, it sends the MAC address of the device to a server in China where the wall wart is pulling and being like, oh, that's my MAC address. Let me turn on or off. And somebody very quickly figured out that they could send an HTTPS post to that server with every MAC address in the manufacturer's range and turn everybody's lamps on and off and on and off and on. (laughs) That's just good fun right there. Yeah. But you see this kind of stuff and you're like, yeah, if the people who built this had cared or talked to someone that knew how to do any of this stuff, you would think that wouldn't happen. For some of this, I don't know, it feels like you need people to come and audit these devices at some point. It's like, We have a bunch of certification stuff that these devices already have to go through to be able to plug into the wall or whatever and promise they're not going to start a fire. But on the software side, I don't know that we want to regulate something, but I do feel like, I don't know, at some point we need some kind of solutions to stop some of these terrible security practices from making it into all these devices that are internet connected into our houses. It should be like the CE thing almost. There should be like a kite mark, like a a specific test that it has to have undergone, like IP certification or whatever, there should be something that tells you that it is trustworthy and is not just going to send your data off to random places on the internet. 
Yeah, but the problem with some of those certifications, like if you look at the, what you have to do to actually be able to put Wi-Fi in something, you have to certify exactly what you're going to ship. And so if you update it, then you have to get certified again. And if it costs hundreds of thousands of dollars each time, people aren't going to do it or you're not going to see the same kind of level of innovation. So I think we need something not quite as strict as the certification requirements we have for this isn't going to start a fire, but we do need something better than trust us. We deployed military grade encryption. That's a red flag whenever you see that, by the way. Whenever some random consumer anything, it doesn't have to be a website, it doesn't have to be about computers. Whenever you see something targeted at Joe and Jane Sixpack talking about how military grade it is, put a hand on your wallet <laughs> and run. For those of you who have never served, as I have, let me tell you what military grade truly means. It means there is a set of very basic specifications, and the person who claims they will build it the cheapest gets the job. That's what military grade means. <laughs> and military grade encryption is, well, it needs to be compatible with our old gear, so the encryption won't be very good necessarily. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A, support the show, and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace, or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres, and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups, and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to linode.com slash 25A, create a free account, and you get $100 in credit and support the show. That's linode.com slash 25A. Samsung, along with a bunch of other Android OEMs, have had their app signing keys leaked, and those keys have been used to sign malware. And they haven't changed those keys seemingly in a long time. And this is really bad for Android security. It's not just that they haven't changed the key in a long time. It's that they've known for a very long time that that key has been leaked. And they're just like, eh, <laughs> they kept using it. I'm genuinely unsure what to say about that. Uh, Samsung claims that it has implemented mitigation measures unspecified, but it's continued using the compromised key. And I'm like, the mitigation measure when somebody steals your key is you stop trusting that key. You change it to one that the bad guys don't have. That's it. <laughs> That's the measure. Yeah. Well, in, in particular, the best practice for this type of stuff, which I've helped a company implement not long ago, was we'll make one master key that's going to sign all of our other keys, and we'll use a separate key for each sub thing, so each model of phone or something, so that if one of these gets compromised, it's much more limited scope, and it's not going to impact every Samsung ever made. It's going to be this model of phone or that model of phone. And if we do it this way, we still have the same root of trust. So we only, you know, once we trust their certificate on one phone, it's trusted on all of them. But when we revoke a certificate, we don't have to revoke it for everything because that'll break everything. And that'll lead to us wanting to not do that and instead deploy these mitigations that, you know, are unspecified and unworkable and not good enough. And just to be clear, this problem is actually even worse than what it sounds like. App developers 
leak their code signing keys all the time, unfortunately, which always sucks because it means that now, you know, whatever miscreant has a copy of that key can create uh, malware versions of that app and publish it and sign it with the correct key and it will look completely valid to absolutely everybody. But wait, it gets worse because this isn't just an app developer. This is Samsung. Samsung is not just an app developer. They are also an Android OEM, which means that they don't just have apps that you go to the store and you decide to install. They have bundled apps. OEM bundled apps don't have to adhere to the same restrictions that normal apps in the Play Store do. They can do more unpleasant things security-wise, not to put too fine a point on it. And they don't have to go through Google's process of validating what the app does before it goes in the App Store. (laughs) Exactly. So it can just, you know, pile right on in. And, you know, if you've ever wondered why it's so difficult to buy an Android phone that doesn't have the Facebook app preloaded, now you know why. Because Facebook does not want to have to go through that process. So they pay extra to have OEMs bundle their app onto the phone specifically so that it doesn't have to go through those procedures. Now, if I had to guess, I'd guess that they also kind of get off on the fact that that means that you can't remove it and you have to stare at it for the rest of the lifetime of the phone. But more importantly, it allows them to get past the normal Play Store app vetting. Yeah, but like Jim was saying, this is worse because it wasn't the developer key. It was the platform certificate key. The platform certificate is the application signing certificate used to sign the actual Android application on the system image. This Android application runs as the highest privileged user ID, android.uid.system, and holds complete system permissions, including permissions to access user data. Any other application signed with the same certificate declared that it wants to run with the same user ID, giving it complete access to the Android operating system. So it's not quite root access, but it's not far off. It basically is root. It can read whatever files it wants to. (laughs) Yeah, I guess. I mean, it's root in all but name. Yeah. In particular, it will allow apps to break out of whatever limited sandboxes exist for system apps. So yeah, not quite root, but maybe as close as makes no difference. Unless you have specifically jailbroken and rooted your phone yourself, it's closer to root than you can get. Let's put it that way. And as I said, this is not just Samsung. This is some other OEMs as well. And what this really means is you can't really trust software that's coming from them or purports to be coming from those OEMs anymore. Right, yeah. The whole point of the signing key is this is supposed to prove that this is legit software from Samsung or LG or MediaTek. And now that somebody else has the key and they haven't revoked the key and said, no, we we repudiate that, means that, yes, you can't trust that it means it's actually from the real Samsung or LG. And it not only means that we're discovering that you can't trust that now, it means that we're discovering you never could. Because the thing is, it's not only about the actual key, it's also about the organization itself having a commitment to actually adhering to at least vaguely decent security practices. And there is no world in which just ignoring a leaked app signing key for four years while you continue to use that key to sign new apps and updates and everything else, like that is not passable security hygiene anywhere. I think my bigger concern is that it seems as if they don't have a written down, ready to go policy for if our key gets compromised, here's how we're going to rotate to a new key and not have to manually do something on everybody's phone or something. And it seems like they don't have a procedure for this. 
I mean, the smaller OEMs that you haven't really heard of and just sell really cheap phones that you don't really expect better of, fair enough. Well, not fair enough, but you can understand at least. But Samsung, they're like the biggest Android OEM out there. Yeah, it's like maybe you should have two root keys and one of them you only only exists specifically for updating the other if it gets compromised. <laughs> I find it very alarming that they don't have a procedure ready to go for this kind of eventuality. You know, you hope this doesn't happen, but you have to be ready to do this. And the fact that they don't seem to have one is very alarming. I find it pretty funny that on the Chromium issue announcing this, the guy from Google says, as always, we advise users to ensure they're running the latest version of Android. Yeah, well, good luck with that if you've got any sort of normal Android phone. My Pixel is perfectly normal. Yeah, my pixel gets the updates, but uh, yeah, if you're running anything else, you're sitting there waiting for your OEM to update it. Although even before the pixel, what the, the Nexus phones I had, I still had to wait for my phone company to do their rebadging of Google's updates, and it always added an extra delay. Well, that's because you were dumb enough to buy your Nexus from your phone company. Yeah, well, I didn't buy my pixels from them. <laughs> okay, this episode is sponsored by Collide. The challenge with endpoint security has always been that it's difficult to scale. And when remote work took over, the challenge got exponentially harder. You need visibility into your fleet of devices in order to meet security goals and reduce service desk tickets. But how do you get that visibility when different parts of your company run on Mac, Windows and Linux? You get Collide. Collide is an endpoint security solution that gives IT teams a single dashboard for all devices regardless of their operating system. Collide gives you real-time access to your fleet's data and can do things that traditional MDMs can't. And instead of installing intrusive agents or locking down devices, Collide takes a user-focused approach that communicates security recommendations to your employees directly on Slack. You can answer every question you have about your fleet without intruding on your workforce. Visit collide.com slash 25A to find out how. If you follow that link, they'll hook you up with a goodie bag just for activating a free trial. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash 25A. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to 2.5admins.com slash support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send any questions for Jim and Alan, you can email show at 2.5admins.com. And do send them in, and the shorter the better. Another perk of being a patron is you get to skip the queue, which is what Thor has done. He writes... I need help. I want to start getting my stuff backed up, but I can't figure out where to start. I have a home server running Ubuntu with ZFS. Pictures, docs, and configs mainly. Large media can be recovered from other places. Whatever do you mean? So I guess I could spend days figuring out Syncoid and Sanoid, creating an Ansible script to set up a VPS with storage to sync my data over as encrypted volumes so I have backups that not even the provider could read. But that hasn't happened in the last year plus, so I'm beginning to think that it won't. Maybe getting Backblaze running in Wine? Should I try to get an account at zfs.rent? Could Duplicati be my savior? Help! Well, let me just say this. Syncoid and Sanoid are not hard. Sanoid is two config files that Jim has already filled out most of the stuff that you need, and it's all very sane defaults. And if you can do rsync, you can do Syncoid. It's really straightforward. It sounds like the unstated part of that question is where in the cloud do I back this up and how? And um, if you want to do it with ZFS replication, the easiest, not necessarily the cheapest answer, 
would be to lease a backup plan from rsync.net. They have a ZFS replication service. You get a FreeBSD VM with you as root, and you can handle replication and local retention snapshots and all that however you would like. You can install Sanoid and Syncoid directly on them and run them just as you would on a full machine of your own. So that's certainly one way to go about it, but it's not going to be as cheap as, you know, like a commodity backup service, you know, like a OneDrive or, or a Carbonite or whatever it will tend to be. He mentions running Backblaze in Wine. Don't they have a Linux client? You would think that they would because their backend obviously runs on Linux, but no, they don't. Oh, okay. I guess it's just not their market. And Wine is great, but do you really want to trust it for something as important as backups? <laughs> no, I do not. <laughs> I just wouldn't want to trust a Windows app, no matter whether it's running in Wine or not. Yeah. That is also correct. Maybe a bit of accounting software that you really want or, you know, an old version of Photoshop or something, but yeah, not your backups. Oh, and you think about all the like Windows-centric assumptions that a Windows-native non-cross-platform backup client is is like going to make and like how is that going to cross over to its attempt to scan your Linux operating system? Oh, nope. Daddy don't like. So definitely doing it with ZFS is going to probably save you a lot of bandwidth over anything else because ZFS will know exactly which blocks changed, whereas anything else is going to have to walk all the blocks and try to decide if they've changed and then reading them on both sides, maybe not using that much bandwidth, but still taking a lot longer. So there's definitely advantages to doing the ZFS way. And like Joe said, it shouldn't take you a couple of days to figure out Sanoid and Syncoid. And so if you have a spare couple of hours and just give it a try, you might find you get it up and going and, and then there's not that much to think about. But as far as how to cheaply store a huge amount of data, that's uh, not really a solved problem just yet. <laughs> Turns out storage is complicated and expensive. And mostly your internet is probably going to be the bottleneck for any, like even if you uh, exclude the larger media that can easily be recovered, obviously, you can only upload so fast. And if your rate of change is pretty high, then that gets kind of suboptimal pretty quick. Well, that's why the classic put something at a friend's house is a good option because you can do your main replication first locally and then just drive across town or across the country or whatever or post it and uh, then just send your um, updated snapshots over. And for that matter, it's tremendously cheaper, especially with any significant volume of data. Uh, you are absolutely not going to get several terabytes of data backed up in the cloud for the cost of, you know, just having a four terabyte drive sitting in a buddy's machine, you know, in the next county over. Yeah. Like when we built the uh, giant ZFS array for the World War II Museum, it's over a petabyte, but when they filled it originally, it was about 600 terabytes of data. And so there's a second identical machine, which got delivered to the museum and they loaded up the first one and replicated everything in the second one. And then they moved that second one under a mountain somewhere in an undisclosed location at the far end of a one gigabit point to point link. And it's been replicating for years, keeping up with lots and lots of changes as they've slowly grown to like 750 terabytes of data. I've never been to that museum, but I like that museum. <laughs> uh, it's all the like original uncompressed video recordings of interviews with World War II veterans and so on that can never be replaced and needed to be stored. But the museum is in New Orleans and the museum might end up underwater again someday. So let's make sure there's a replica of all this stuff under a mountain somewhere. Very sensible. And yeah, there is 
just no way anything in the cloud was going to be able to store a petabyte for the amount of money they paid for the ZFS server. No. The last thing I'll mention about this is um, replication is awesome, but right now there aren't that many places in the cloud that you can just easily acquire a ZFS replication target. That's just a real thing. And I don't want anybody to feel like, oh, well, if I signed on to this ZFS thing, like it's the only way I can back up. That's not in any way true. Just about any method that you hear about that you can back up a Linux machine already to the cloud, you can still use that if you're using ZFS. And unless you have a very large amount of data, that may very well be fine for you, just like it is for all the people who aren't using ZFS. I mean, like I know there's a Linux client at iDrive. Several of, of those folks have clients that have easier web interfaces and, and you know, GUIs and, and all this stuff. So don't feel like just because you have ZFS, you have to figure out replication or you can't back up. That's really not true. Replication is great, but don't let any possible difficulty you might have with figuring out replication or finding a target keep you from backing up the machine because that's the really important part. For sure. Like even mine, where I have ZFS replicas of stuff, all my really important business docs also get a copy going up into Tarsnap because if something goes wrong, I really need that subset of the files back. And I want those ones also in the cloud, not just on my two replicas on ZFS. Yeah, same with me. I have an rsync job as well as ZFS replication because why not? Well, as we've said before, if there aren't three copies of it, it probably doesn't really exist. <laughs> okay, Christopher writes, I recently bought a new PC. It came installed with Ubuntu 20.04. Two questions. I assume that if I want ZFS on my root partition, I should just reinstall Ubuntu and do their guided ZFS. Or is there a way to set up ZFS on root without a reinstall that won't be a janky mess? Also, I read about sending snapshots to another PC. Is it possible to use an external hard disk? My thinking is to snapshot as a form of backup to an external disk for my critical stuff and put that in a fire safe. Well, that second question is pretty straightforward, right? Well, yeah, of course you can snapshot and uh, send those snapshots to an external hard disk. Yeah, it's it's completely reasonable to use an external hard drive as a backup that way. You can totally set it up as its own pool, import the pool, replicate to it, and then export it, and you know, then go put it in your drawer, your fire safe, or, or whatever. That's a great plan. The one thing that I would caution everybody about is don't get the idea that I will just plug this USB drive in, leave it sitting on my desk, and connected 24-7 to replicate to whenever I feel like it. That tends to be more of a recipe for disaster. I have found that USB drives are reliable enough for, hey, I need to plug this in and get some stuff off of it and put some more things onto it and then unplug it again. But long-term connections over USB are just begging for trouble. And honestly, that's not limited to ZFS. Yeah, like most of the time, this is literally the external hard drives are real hard drives that didn't work out perfectly in the manufacturing process. <laughs> They're just not meant for a 24-7 duty cycle. Don't trust these snobs. All of my disks are shucked USB drives, and they're fine. They're absolutely fine. Yes. You have, what, like six hard drives? I have 600. Who do you going to trust? <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, what Alan said is only one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is that even if you assume that the manufacturers are using only the finest artisanal hard drives inside those enclosures, they're still getting powered off the 5-volt rail from the USB port on your computer or laptop 
which is a way less reliable, way lower quality power source than the giant honking $80 brick sitting inside your desktop. But what about this ZFS on root situation? That is just a bit of a shit show on Ubuntu, isn't it? It's not too hard to follow the instructions at uh, zfsbootmenu.org, which is how I would recommend you get a ZFS root if you want one with Ubuntu or honestly pretty much any Linux distribution. If you're using the desktop installer for Ubuntu, you can install ZFS on root directly from the installer. Unfortunately, that will come with ZSys, which is an orchestration framework that was quite complex and ambitious and really never got more than half finished before it was deprecated. So if you go that route, the first thing that you really ought to do is apt purge ZSys and get rid of it. And then you can install your own snapshot management, you know, whether it be my own Sanoid or, you know, what have you. The other thing beyond that, of course, is that the desktop installer is very limited in terms of how you can create your pool and what data sets your operating system goes on to. Uh, you're going to end up with only very simple pool topography. And beneath that, you're going to have a bewildering number of data sets that your operating system is carved up into. It's actually worse than the old days when installers would make like, you know, 10 different partitions on one drive to install the OS. If I recall correctly, I want to say it's like 28 different data sets the thing creates. It's ridiculous. Remind me of how you told me it isn't a shit show. Yeah, fair enough. The main reason I said it's not that much of a shit show is if you go through the zfsbootmenu.org instructions, it's really not that hard. You just have to run a couple of commands from the shell in your installer. Then you can proceed with your perfectly normal installation. You have a perfectly normal Ubuntu, but you also have not only ZFS on root, but ZFS boot environments, which will allow you to do things like boot to earlier snapshots. So you can take a snapshot before you do something potentially dangerous that might wreck your whole desktop OS. You can take automated snapshots periodically. And, you know, maybe you have the dreaded issue where, like, you log into your desktop environment and, like, nothing's right. The windows are all wrong and wonky. Or, you know, maybe you get nothing whatsoever. Well, you can reboot the whole system into the snapshot before that problem happened very easily using a menu presented to you at the time when you boot. It's very powerful. So it's almost as good as uh, using ButterFS then for your root partition. If your name is Joe Ressington, you should absolutely use ButterFS. You can't see the face I'm making at you right now, but <laughs> boot environments are just so great. Like I use them because oftentimes if I'm going to a conference or something, I'm going to upgrade my laptop not very soon before the conference. And then if I plug into the HDMI port for the projector and things don't work, I can just reboot choose the older boot environment and everything's working again. But my home directory has not gone back in time. So the newer version of my slides is still there and everything just works. It is magical. Right, well, we better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send any questions for Jim and Alan. You can find me on Twitter at Jar Ressington. I'm at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.